So. Okay. So today uh, we're in Genesis 14. If you're using the Blue Bible in front of you, I think it's, I didn't write it down, I think it's page 12. Page 14. So if you're using the Blue Bible, it's, it's 12? Okay. So Genesis 14, our passage today is going to be verses 1 through 16. Next week we will finish the chapter. It will be verses 17 through 24. So write these down in your worship guide. Take your worship guide home with you and be sure to look over the passage a few times between now and next week. At, while we were eating, we had a pretty cool conversation about epic battles and epic stories. And these included Avengers and Star Wars and, and even Lion King to a degree. Not nearly like Avengers and Star Wars though. There's some major similarities. Like I think people identify with those films and those long... I mean, Star Wars story has been being told over a span of over 40 years now. Mm-hmm. And I think people get sucked into those epic big stories because there's something about it that just our human hearts long for. These battles between good, evil, all this. You know, it's very clear in many, most of the time, who's good and who's not. And there's a long-term battle that's spanning many decades. And I see the Scripture being a story of a God who is good and of an enemy and also of a people who have turned from God and who have gone bad. And there is an ongoing spiritual battle that has been going on for thousands of years and may continue for thousands of years more before it's over or it could end by the time I sit down today from teaching God's Word. The verses that we covered our first Sunday in Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, are verses that are relevant for all of Abram's life and for the entire story of the Bible. We are looking at the early days of an incredible story. And God is the one who is writing this story. God is the one who is in charge. God has defeated so many of his enemies already, and he will defeat all of them at some point in the future. And in today's story... We have a righteous man, a man of faith, a man named Abram. We also have some bad guys. We also have a battle. So I must tell you that it's a bit of a confusing passage, especially the first nine verses. I had to draw it out on a sheet of paper because there's different groups of kings. This battle is historically known as the War of Nine Kings. So the War of Nine Kings. I've got a graphic up here I want to show you, and I'm going to point to it as I read the passage. You've seen this map before. So I'll read beginning in verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam. These kings made war. Okay, verse 1, 
was four kings. Those four kings lived in this part of the world. Now in verse 2, and I don't claim to know how to say any of these correctly. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Alright? Five kings. And they all live down there near Canaan, near the promised land, in a much smaller area. Verse 3, all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. So the four kings went down to the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, and they had a battle. So verses 1 through 3 is like a summary. It tells you what happened. You get in verse 4, and it goes back 12 or 13 years. You ever watched a movie in the first five minutes of a scene, and then all of a sudden the movie goes back 20 years later? Or earlier? Well, as Moses is writing the book of Genesis, that's what he does here. So realizing that and recognizing that ahead of time will help the story make a bit more sense. So we've got four kings from the north that are battling five kings in the south. Verse 4. Twelve years they had served Kedor Laomer. Those are the five kings in the south, serving one of the kings in the north. But in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Sheva, Kiriathaim, and the Horites and their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan. Tamar. Okay. So verses... So... These kings were having to pay taxes and tribute, most likely. That was how these things usually worked back then. To Kedor Laomer, who was one of these kings. After 12 years of that, these or 13 years, they rebelled. And they said, we aren't doing that anymore. So the next year, these kings went down to set them straight. And on the way down, they conquered six other kings in this area. <laughs> so, where were we? Verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. That's asphalt. Natural asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive. He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We commit ourselves to it. I pray that you may, as we study, as we dig in, as we listen to one another, that your Holy Spirit would illumine the passage. Would you turn the lights on so we can see what's happening, so we can see what you're saying to us. And God, I pray that we may be sanctified by your word. And I pray that we may grow in maturity according to your plan, according to your purposes. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Take a few minutes, read the passage to yourself, and when the time is right, discussion leaders will get things started. Okay, everyone. We can summarize this passage by saying in verses 1 through 12, the four kings from the north defeated 11 kings on their trip south, and they took Lot with them. They captured Lot. Lot and his family became slaves. Most likely would have been how that scenario would turn out over time. In verses 13 through 16, we see Abram's victory. Let's just put this into perspective, okay? Abram had 318 men. His wealth, his status, you know, as far as his power and his influence has been increasing over time. I think he probably started out fairly well off to begin with before the promise of God. But no doubt that he's, he's prospered since then. And we've seen that a little bit in the scripture here and there. But he's got 318 fighting men. And he takes on a group of four kings who de- had already defeated six kings here. And then had defeated five kings at the Valley of Sedan, which is right in there. So we've got a group of four kings who have, who have conquered 11 kings and their kingdoms and their armies. And Abram, one man with 318 men, goes out and he conquers them. And most likely kings back then did not have the extreme status of a Roman emperor at the time of Christ or a U.S. president or some of the nations of today. Back then a king could have just been the most influential authority figure in a city. Okay? It could have been something that small. Generally speaking, in this age of history, which was about 4,000 years ago, the kings and kingdoms were much smaller and much more localized. There were more of them and they were smaller. It was kind of like businesses in the United States 100 years ago. There were more of them, they were local, they were smaller. You didn't have mega corporations, but we do today. So, most likely, this was a these kings were smaller groups of people. They could have had hundreds or possibly even thousands of men. We just don't know. I tried to find information on individual some of these individual names in here, and history really doesn't have a lot of information about most of these kingdoms. We do know that the four were up north. We do know that the five were there around the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. But the details of each kingdom we don't know that much about. So Abram had someone show up at his house 
who had been involved in the battle. He had escaped from the battle and he went to Abram and he said, they've taken Lot. And we know that Abram and Lot are, have been close. They've shared a lot of their life together. And I believe that this story illustrates that Lot was very precious to Abram. So Abram took his 318 men. He went to where the four kings were. He divided them up, maybe two groups, maybe three groups. I don't know. The Bible doesn't record. And he attacked the four kings by night. And on top of attacking them, he chased them probably 70 to 100 miles. How long would it take to to, to go that far on foot? I don't know. But he chased them a long ways. And what did he do when he caught up with them? I want to know that. The guys who lagged behind slowly in the back. What did Abram and his men do when they caught up? It's almost like insult to injury. Okay, they won't leave us alone. They're still chasing us. They're going to chase us all the way home. But there came a point where Abram and his men stopped. And they get Lot back. Let me read verse 16. He brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So what do we do with this story? You know, as a preacher, I read this story and I'm like, what do I tell my people? It just seems like a nice story from 4,000 years ago, but it, it, it seems a little bit disconnected from our life today, does it not? There's no command in here. It's not like reading through 1 John and there's all these explanations of the important things that mean a lot to us. It's not like the life of Jesus where sometimes he taught in very, very practical terms. There's no warnings against sin. There's no gospel presentations. You know, it's just a battle story. When we want to try to understand a passage, one of the things that we need to ask We need to think through why this passage was written. And we need to ask ourselves, what do we know about the original readers and how they would interpret this passage? Moses wrote this hundreds of years after it happened. He wrote it so that God's people could read it. Why did Moses want to record this story? And when the people read the story, what would they have thought? What would they have understood? As students of the Bible, which we all are, every, as every Christian should be, we need to ask ourselves, what would the original reader understand? Most likely, Moses felt that it was good for the people to hear this story because Abram was a person of faith. And God's people that Moses was leading were supposed to be, and sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't, but they were supposed to be people of faith who trusted God. And Moses' people had battles ahead of them. And Moses was no stranger to battles. He knew how they worked. He had killed men with his bare hands before because people weren't doing the right thing. He knew what was right. He knew what was wrong. He knew about evil nations. He knew about warfare to some degree. And he had seen God deliver his people out of Egypt by parting the Red Sea, making dry land, walking through that land, 
and then letting the sea crash over on the enemies of God and his people, the Egyptians. Moses knew that God was the God who fights for his people. And I believe that one of the reasons that Moses included this story was because he wanted people to know that in the future, and this certainly did happen, there would be kings from this part of the world that would come and attack God's people in this part of the world. That is something we see multiple times throughout the Old Testament. And when you look at the rest of the Old Testament, there were times where God's enemies won the battle. And that was God's plan. God was using an evil empire to bring judgment upon his people. But there were other times when God's people trusted God. God gave them the victory. And that is one very practical life lesson for us today. I'm not the preacher who's going to say, be like Abram, be like Moses, and you'll conquer all your giants. There's a far deeper lesson here than that. But I will tell you, if you trust God, He will fight your battles for you. So when you're trying to understand a passage, ask yourself, why did the author write it, and what were the original readers probably thinking when they read it? How did... What, what would have been, what would they have connected with? How would they have connected the Bible story to what was going on in their life at that moment in time? But there's another question that helps us understand a passage like this and all passages. We need to ask the question what do we learn about God? Or what is God doing? Who gave Abram the victory? God. That's. We all know that. You're exactly right. And, and we talked about that a great deal at our table. But what is God doing? What do we learn about God? I believe that it's helpful to go back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. We covered that passage on our very first Sunday. If you're going to understand Abram's life, you have to keep going back to verses 1, 2, and 3. If you're going to understand the grand storyline, the epic saga of the Scripture and of all of history, even things yet to come, you've got to understand verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 are a summary of the Gospel and of all of the Bible. And what we see happening in Genesis chapter 14 is the early fulfillment of a faithful God fulfilling His promises. In chapter, or in verse, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, six promises are made. Verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. God's talking to Abram. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How were those promises fulfilled in Abram's life in chapter 14 and in this battle with all these kings? Well, he says in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. How many armies did the four bad guys conquer? 
before they got in touch with Abram? It was 11. Abram conquered four armies that had conquered 11 armies. I think he's a pretty bad dude by that. <laughs> you know what I mean by that. You know, you shouldn't mess with him. He's powerful. Why is he powerful? Because God is fulfilling his promise in him, and Abram is using his power in a right and good and healthy way. More of the promises. I will bless you. Is Abram blessed? There's no doubt about it. In verse 2, it also says, I will make your name great. Is God fulfilling that promise? He is. And that was the early days. I mean, maybe a few decades. I'm not sure. 10, 20, 30 years maybe after the original promise. Genesis 14 happens. Nobody knows for sure the exact timeline of this stuff from what I can tell. But these are the early fulfillments of it. And that promise, make your name great, 4,000 years later, we're still talking about Abraham. God is faithful. God is beginning to do it. And he he says in verse 2, I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Who did Abram bless in Genesis chapter 14? Lot. Lot. Yeah. He does bless us. But in our passage today, specifically, he blessed Lot. And the people, it says the women and I think the servants or the others who were with him. So God is making Abram great. God is blessing Abram so that Abram would be a blessing to others. And look at the sixth promise, the final promise of verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I want to tell you that our God is mighty. And when his promise is upon us and we trust him, great and incredible things happen. Now, that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. But regardless of whether it's easy or not, when you trust God and his promise and his eyes are turned upon you, incredible things happen. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Why don't you mention that to me this morning? I love it when y'all help me write the sermons. You do it all the time and you don't even realize it. If God is for us, who can be against us? I remember in 2014, I was on a flight. I had a long layover. It was two flights. And from the time I left the airport to the time I got back to Norfolk to get picked up, I read the entire book of Joshua. 24 chapters. And there were a number of reasons why I was diving into Joshua. But as I... Dove into the book of Joshua. There were many things I took away from it. But I think the biggest thing that stood out to me from the book of Joshua was that our God is a God who fights for his people. He is a God who fights for us. As Abram trusted God and did what he believed was the right thing to do, He's reminding me of Jesus. Jesus was someone who trusted God perfectly. There was a difference between Abram and Jesus. Abram did not trust God perfectly at all times. Jesus did. But I see Abram pointing us to Christ. And we're going to see this come out in the months ahead. Christ was someone who fought 
for his people. As Abram had this, he was compelled into battle to fight evil and to rescue someone who was dear to him. How different is that than God who sends a savior to set people free who he loves dearly? Is it not true that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life? I see Abram in so many ways pointing ahead to Jesus. This story reminds me, when I, when I look at how Abram saved Lot, it reminds me of our catechism question, question number 24. We went over it a few months ago. We will go over it again. But in question 24, it says, why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? The answer, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. I love how this catechism question, and this is the value and and, and the benefit of catechisms, it summarizes in a very short statement that can be memorized or that can be sung whether you're two years old or 70. It summarizes such incredible and powerful truths. Why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Christ died willingly in our place to do what? To deliver us from the power and penalty of sin. He delivered us from two things, Jesus did. The power and the penalty of sin. I think that we understand as as Christians who've been in church for a while, most of us, probably all of us, I, I think we understand the penalty of sin. We understand to some degree that God is infinitely holy. He is infinitely righteous. He is infinitely just, meaning he's a God of justice. And to rebel against him or to sin against him, to defy his holiness, earns us eternal torment and fire and separation from God in judgment. That is the ultimate penalty of sin. But not only does Christ, not only did Christ die in our place to deliver us from the penalty of sin, but Christ died in our place to deliver us us from the power of sin, as the Catechism teaches us. Read Romans 6 if you want to go deeper in that. Christ died to deliver us from the power of our enemy. Satan is our enemy. Sin, which still dwells in us, won't always be the case, but right now it is. It still lives in us. We're still tempted. Abram delivered Lot from their enemies. I want to tell you that Christ can deliver you from the power of sin in your most difficult moment. Not only does he save you from hell, but he saves you from habitual sin. He saves you from that awful place that sometimes we go to where we think, I, there's no way I'm ever going to change. 
His power is awesome and mighty. And no number of kings going against him, against Jesus, will be too much for him. No group will ever rally against him and have final victory over him. 2,000 years ago, they thought they had victory for a moment, but Sunday morning came and it all got screwed up. It all got messed up. What does our God do? How do we see God? How do we see Christ? How do we see the gospel in Genesis chapter 14? We see God delivers his people. Amen. Are you one of his people? Amen. If you're not, he says, come to me. He says, call on the name of the Lord. He says, repent, turn from your sin, turn to God in faith. And you will belong to him if you do that. And if you don't belong to God, I ask you to call on him today. If you are, if you do belong to Him, what does God want you to do? He wants you to keep trusting Him. And never stop. And while God has delivered you from so much already, there are battles in the future. And I tell you, look to your God and He will deliver you from that. All those promises in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, He is faithful to fulfill those. The promise that's on my mind the last few days in relation to, to, to this teaching is from Ephesians 1. Paul writes, When you believed, you were marked in God with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Is God in you? Does the Holy Spirit abide in you? I tell you that if you've believed on Christ and are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. The Bible says He gave the Holy Spirit as a deposit. It can also be translated as a pledge or as a down payment. And it guarantees that we will receive our inheritance to the praise of the glory of God. I share that verse with you because many of us in here have decades of life ahead of us and no doubt there are battles. If you have believed in Christ, He has given you the Holy Spirit as a seal. And let me tell you what, nobody's going to tear apart that seal. If you're in the hand of God, no one is going to pluck you from His hand. If He has adopted you into His family, no one's going to undo that adoption. If God has worked in you, you've seen Him conquer, you will see Him conquer over and over and over again. What has God delivered you from already? Think about some of the things you used to do. Amen. Think about some of the crazy things you used to think and believe. Now think about some of the crazy things you still do. (laughs) Think about some of the crazy things you still believe that don't make sense. On your worst day, what do the voices inside your head say? I want to tell you something. God's going to deliver you from this. Because that's what He does. His Holy Spirit is in you. 
and whatever battles are going on in your soul right now, God is going to deliver you. He is going to be faithful and keep His promise to you. He is sovereign. He will not be conquered. Amen. And His love for you is great. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for this unusual, <laughs> somewhat difficult passage of Scripture today. And we thank You for Your power and Your faithfulness, oh God. We need You. Would You lead us? And would You teach us? May we trust Your promises. And may we depend on You wholly and fully in our worst days and in our worst moments. You are our Deliverer. And there is no one like You. Amen.